Hello and welcome to Epic Nitpick. Every week we choose one piece of pop culture and offer our highly uncredentialed take. This week we will be reviewing Baby Driver. I am Andy and I am joined as always by my co-host and beautiful tropical fish of a man, <laughs> Paul. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about this movie. I saw it last night and had a wonderful time. I liked your inflection on the title that you used in the intro. It implied more emphasis on the baby than the driver. <laughs> baby driver. <laughs> All right. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. We will, of course, have a spoiler-free section, and then we will dig in for the, the Epic Nitpick spoiler-full section, and you will be warned when that is about to happen. Uh, the plot synopsis for Baby Driver from IMDb. After being coerced into working for a crime boss, a young getaway driver finds himself taking part in a heist doomed to fail. And this film stars Ansel Elgort, Kevin Spacey, John Bernthal, Isaac Gonzalez, JohnHamazon.com, Jamie Foxx, <laughs> and the biggest name of them all, Flea. Um, what, is, what was that John Ham thing? JohnHamazon.com. What is that? It's, uh, it's like Amazon, but curated by John Ham. <laughs> Excellent. And so this is... Edgar Wright's latest effort. Before we talk about this film, I want to ask you, Paul, are you a fan of Edgar Wright's work? I will say Shaun of the Dead is probably in my top five movies, if we include Lord of the Rings of all as, time. as, one, as one movie, yeah. the trilogy. I think Shaun of the Dead is in my top five movies of all time. I love that movie, and I love Hot Fuzz. Yeah, I've only seen The World's End one time, whereas I've seen Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz multiple times, so maybe I should give it a second watch through, but Shaun of the Dead, love it. And... and if you are a fan of Edgar Wright, I feel like you will notice like, okay, like even if I, you know, honestly, if I hadn't seen or if I hadn't known that it was directed by Edgar Wright, there are parts where I might have been like, huh, these, these shots, the way that these shots are structured and like the filmography of it, it's very reminiscent of some of the shots in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Yes, definitely. And I, I too am a fan of Edgar Wright's work. I don't think I've seen any Edgar Wright film that I haven't at least enjoyed I do believe The World's End is probably my least favorite film yeah. of his. I've seen it twice. I enjoyed it more the second time. I recently read a piece that was like defending it as like his best work, or at least the best part of the Cornetto trilogy. I disagree with that. I still think Shaun of the Dead is reigns supreme oh, for me. So but I, I generally really like his his work. I even I really liked uh, Scott Pilgrim. I thought that was great. Oh, yeah. So he does good work, and certainly his visual flair carried over into this film. So, mm -hmm. Paul, yes. tell us about your overall impressions of Baby Driver. So uh, it's interesting because when you watch the trailers, and there were a lot of like on Instagram, there was a lot of like Instagram trailers. So it would only be it'd be short trailers, like twenty or thirty seconds, and I didn't really understand that this. I don't think this is a this is a spoiler. That the, I didn't understand at first that the, the, the movie is very musically driven. And that's kind of like... I thought it was driven by the baby. <laughs> is that not... This is the follow-up to uh, Boss Baby starring Alec Baldwin? Yeah. Right? Like, uh, we could acknowledge it's not a good name for a film. Oh, I, I've, terrible. I've encountered so many people that are like, baby driver like why would i want to <laughs> yeah. see that it just sounds like it's gonna be like three men and a baby or like some ridiculous thing involving a small child it sounds like it's like it sounds like the plot of the movie of baby driver would be vin diesel is hired as a chauffeur of like a, a baby <laughs> or something like that and they they go on these wacky adventures and he's got to like beat up all these people and save this baby it's like <laughs> the pacifier too, baby driver mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah and I, I also think that the I am a proponent of not seeing the trailers. I actually went into this knowing almost nothing about it other than director and some of the stars. Yeah. And I did afterwards go back, as I often do, and watch a lot of the promotional materials. And I was like, I don't think these trailers are all that great. And I can understand why people were hesitant yeah. to see them. Every time I tell, like, since, since yesterday when I saw the movie, I've told a few people, like, oh, this movie's great. And I always have to be like... It's a terrible name. Like, you've probably seen the trailers. Like, it probably makes you not want to see it. It just seems like a kind of... The trailer makes it seem like a... Just a, a cliche action movie that's not really adding anything different. That's kind of the vibe that I got. And, uh, and I will say, very much of this film is cliche. Yeah. There is very much, in many regards, deviates a little bit. 
it's in many regards following the like heist driver trope that we've seen a million times before. Obviously, it has its own take, like style-wise, is yeah. what makes the movie worth seeing. But anyway, continue. You didn't realize that this was so musically yeah. driven. And I think that even though there are a lot of those same tropes and cliches, the the musical element of this movie makes it unique. And I think very unique. Like I, um, and actually when we were just preparing to do this, I saw an article that was about, cause Baby, Baby Driver and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 came out around the same time. And Guardians of the, I haven't seen Volume 2, but the first one has a similar kind of, not, definitely not to the extent of Baby Driver, but it's also at points musically driven as well. Uh, because Chris Pratt's character like has the Walkman. And um, and I saw an article how they, they made sure, the two directors made sure not to overlap music. But uh, besides Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, it's like I can't think of another movie right off the top of my head besides a literal musical that is so <laughs> musically driven or where music and not just as like a soundtrack type piece, but the music is literally integrated into the movie. Yes, Absolutely. That's very cool. I think that's kind of what set it over the top for me and really kind of pulled me into the world. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe most people will have this experience, even though I didn't see the trailers. But like you said, you saw the trailers. You didn't realize how much music was a part of this film. Yeah. And as you're watching it and you start to realize how the actions and sounds of the film are syncing up with the song... I think for me, I'll say I think the first 15 or so minutes of the film are the strongest part of the film. And that's also when the music is really syncing up with what's going on the most, except for yeah. a few other sequences beyond. And that's that's when I was kind of like, you know, the character is walking down the street and a car is driving by and honks their horn and it, it mixes in with the swell of the horns in a song that's playing. Yeah. And just the sounds of like a street musician mixes in or like the bell when he walks into a coffee shop is synced up with the, the timing. And I didn't honestly didn't really even recognize what was happening until he's standing at the counter being asked what he wants at a coffee shop. And he's going, hmm. But he does the hmm in, in, in sync with like a hmm, hmm, hmm. Like think, and then I was like, wait, did they just? <laughs> so I have now seen the film twice. And so kind of watching it from the beginning, knowing what to expect and sort of seeing how all these little things synced up and spending a lot more attention on that. I, I It must have been very hard to choreograph these sequences. And obviously they had to have clearance for these songs before yeah. before doing the film. And so just from a technical standpoint, so much of this film is impressive. Oh, yeah. I think that like as we've been drooling over how it syncs <laughs> up with the music and at some points better than others you know sometimes it's like just one little thing within a whole song syncs up it's not like the whole thing is choreographed like in the beginning but still very impressive and also i thought the 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 chase sequences no no secret or spoilers yeah. chase sequences in these films were great Ranging from great to incredible, I think especially the opening chase sequence for mm -hmm. me was just like, I was just, oh, it brought a huge smile to my face. It was such a joyful experience to watch what was going on. And there's also a chase sequence on foot later in the film that I thought was masterfully done. When that scene started, I was like, I don't know if this is going to be able to be as good as the the driving sequence, the, the driving chase scenes, the, the like the running chase scene. Cause I was like, yeah. this whole movie is about cars and stuff like that. So I was like, Oh, this is going to be not as epic, but it really was. It was really good. Yeah. And, and I was going to say before, did you notice in the coffee shop uh, also uh, when he first takes out his headphones and he's first talking to the barista person, he says like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something like he says something else that also goes along with the music uh, that he's listening I to. I didn't even notice that. But yeah. I think certainly a film that will reward repeat viewing mm -hmm. for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So should we get into the... We already are starting to talk about scenes. <laughs> We're kind of talking about scenes already. Yeah, I guess I'll just say that the soundtrack, I think, is great overall. It works really well. I was listening to it on my drive back from the theater. It's up on Spotify. <laughs> and then during my drive up to meet Paul to record this episode... And I was just reliving scenes that were so integral to aspects of the movie and like the music is like tied into scenes. I thought that was great. I loved the cast of this film. 
I, I mean, Ansel Elgort, he is great. He's very charming. The only other thing that I have seen him in is The Fault in Our Stars, which is a film where he is also playing a, a young man who is like very charismatic and just kind of like effortlessly charismatic. Yeah. Um, he, he, I mean, I guess he's traditionally handsome, but he's kind of more like boy next doorish in yeah. his in his presentation. And it, to me, that works really well in the film. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought he was great. I, I also think he did a good job of because because his character doesn't does not talk very much. Yeah. And so when he does talk, he did a good job at certain scenes of being like very awkward, kind of, you know. Yeah, and you know, he for someone that doesn't say a lot, and this is actually making me think because I, I had a friend who was like, I think this isn't it just a rip off of Drive, in which you have Ryan Gosling who's like the king of not emoting, just the king <laughs> of just like having that like blank stare, but you also just read into it so much, and yeah. he's like kind of this vulnerable puppy dog, but also really tough. <laughs> He had some moments where he had to convey being extremely uncomfortable without saying anything. And you just, you got that from his face just so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of a scene in a diner. And I don't know. I thought, I thought he was great. I, I enjoyed Kevin Spacey. He yeah. was just kind of doing his thing. I recently finished uh, season five of House of Cards. And so seeing him being this kind of intimidating crime guy, crime lord guy. Yeah. Not much of a stretch, but <laughs> he does it. He does it well. A less ridiculous accent in Baby Driver. <laughs> yes. And uh, John Hamm. I don't know. I just love John Hamm. I love his presence. He's great. I thought he he was really good. And it was just it was nice to see like John Bernthal, Jamie mm-hmm. Foxx. I loved CJ Jones, mm-hmm. who is actually someone I was looking into his backstory uh, earlier today and he's had roles in pop culture and like TV shows for like a long time. Oh really? Uh, he, he's like popped up in various things. I thought he was incredible. I want to I want to talk more about his role and it's yeah. part in the film in the spoiler section mm-hmm. but you also enjoyed oh, CJ yeah. Jones. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I, that, that yeah we'll wait to the spoiler section. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, yeah I guess with that unless you have any other final final vague thoughts let's dive into spoilers. Go see it. <laughs> See the film. Yeah, we both very much enjoyed it, if it's not obvious. Yeah. So, yeah. Spoilers for Baby Driver, starting right now. Ding. <laughs> Should we start with the C.J. Jones character? Sure. Let's, let's do it. So, there's this whole... Um, obviously, the, the whole movie is very musically driven. But not only is it musically driven, it's also, like, hearing Lee driven. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know how Hearing, to phrase that. Having, having your ability to fully hear the environment around you is yeah. like a large plot point in the film. Because um, Baby Driver, the, the titular baby, is... Uh, <laughs> Wait, he, B-A-V-O-I baby? <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he is in a car accident when he's very young and as a result has developed tinnitus. So he's got this like hum um just like humming the drum as hum- kevin spacey says <laughs> yeah yeah and to kind of drown it out he wears the headphones all the time so it's like right off the bat that's starting off with like the, the kind of being able to hear element but then also cj jones who plays um baby's foster father is also deft as well and so there's like um a lot of sign language exchange between them and cj jones the actor himself is also deaf which i think is which i think is cool that they cast a person that is deaf to play a character that is deaf. Huge props. And I think you can, it really translates well onto mm-hmm. the screen. I was reading an article from a deaf viewer of the film talking about how these film films that have deaf people so often don't get it right. Cause they hire someone that is able to hear Yeah, and they kind of just learn whatever motions for whatever they need to say. Yeah. And like, you know, as someone who's not, accustomed to sign language you know i'm like okay yep but i didn't realize how much how different it would be seeing someone that actually does it on film and so this this person that wrote the article was like really appreciative of that and was like you can tell that like ansel elgort like really learned how to do sign language for this Mm -hmm. and you could tell that uh cj jones character was actually like played by a deaf person yeah and uh, those were some of my favorite scenes in the film. And it was actually kind of nice because there are often these very quiet moments in this otherwise very loud yeah. and, and like kinetic film. Mm-hmm. And the way they did the subtitles, I thought was great. It wasn't just like, you know, the subtitle at the bottom. It was 
it was like in different spots around the um like next to the character it was just like very i thought it was very very well done um yeah i loved their relationship yeah i think in general yeah back to what you were saying though i imagine and obviously andy or myself wouldn't be able to pick up on something like this but i imagine if you are someone that's deaf or hard of hearing and you watch a movie with someone that's doing sign language that is not deaf it's probably like for like hearing an accent on a character that's supposed to be from somewhere else yes. and then being like and i can see how that would like take you out of like you know it's like it's like seeing arnold schwarzenegger supposed to play like an american born yeah. person and they make no they make no <laughs> effort to cover up the fact that he's doesn't have this absurd accent yeah yeah definitely and i read an, an interview with cj jones where he was talking about the level of trust that was given to him by Edgar Wright to play this part. Mm -hmm. I guess it took them a while to find the right actor for this part. Um, And then, and like Edgar Wright said, as Susie saw CJ Jones audition, he was like, couldn't picture anyone else in this role. Like, obviously you have it. And he's someone that has, this even comes across without knowing it. He has a lot of control over his films. He's very meticulous in how he presents things and the dialogue. It's not a film where you get the idea that like the actors are really, like riffing on a joke. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, C.J. Jones was saying when you're doing sign language like that, you're kind of boiling down language into its essence. You know, so it's he's not giving getting across every single word that Edgar Wright has written down, mm-hmm. and Edgar Wright really trusted him to translate that part yeah. onto the screen, which I thought was, I thought was great. I mean, there's such a history of able-bodied folks playing disabled yeah. characters. And obviously there are great actors out there that could fill those roles that actually bring their own life experience to it. So it was nice to see that that was actually done in this film. It really was. And, um, moving beyond that character to just to keep going back to the, how hearing is a big part of the whole movie. Like, um, that th- they make, there's that that scene where uh, is it Jamie Foxx's character is like oh when when um, Kevin Spacey's giving all the directions about what to do uh-huh. and then and then it, it seems like uh, baby's not listening to the like listening to Kevin Spacey at all and then Jamie Foxx's character is like oh he wasn't listening at all and then baby kind of like recounts the whole thing so there's this whole element of how he doesn't actually need to he doesn't really need to hear his surroundings as much to kind of know what's going on. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, when um, John Hamm's character shoots like right next to his ears and there's like kind of the ringing and and it's just, it's, I thought that that part was so well done where it's like, everything is kind of muffled and it's like the scene is still going on, but everything is muffled. And, and um, yeah, so there's this, that kind of uh, theme of hearing and to different extents going on throughout the movie. Yeah, and actually a nice little thing that I kind of picked up on my second viewing is that the very first sound you hear it as like the soundtrack fades up and like the studio logos coming in is that that high ringing sound in the ears. Oh. It kind of it kind of does it briefly and then morphs into the sound of like music. Yeah. Uh, and that's the sort of like how the film starts and yeah. I thought that was like a a really fun tie-in. Yeah. No, but it was that was it was cool. Yeah. I like that that whole element of it. Yeah. And the film wasn't like overflowing with laughs, but I found myself laughing a lot at things that were happening. I, I was in a theater with like three other people. Yeah. So I didn't get the the laughing cue of like the rest of the movie la- the movie theater laughing, you know. Yeah. But there were a couple parts where I not that many, like you said, but there were a few parts where I kind of chuckled to myself. Yeah. But then like no one else is laughing. I don't hear anyone else laughing, so I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh no, <laughs> I shouldn't have laughed at that. The, the first time I saw it was with uh, our mutual friend Josh, and so so it was able we were like able to laugh together about things. Yeah. And we have a similar yeah, yeah, sense yeah. of humor. And there was more. It was pretty soon after it opened, so there was more people in the theater. And then when I saw it last night, there was four other people, two of which were making out very loudly in the oh, back God. row uh, and kind of talking through things. So I was just kind of like laughing by myself <laughs> and I was like thinking that they're like, who's this weirdo laughing at all this yeah. stuff? And not that it was happening like all the time, but... Uh, the Mike Myers la- mask. <laughs> the Mike Myers bit 
is prominently featured in the trailers, but having not seen the trailers, I lost my shit. Oh, I didn't see that in the trailer. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. It, I I thought that that was just delightful. <laughs> just like the like the double joke, like like the joke that kept going when he's like, "This is Mike Myers." He's like, "No, a Halloween mask." He's like, "This is a Halloween mask." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, I I loved the, the little bit with JD when he's like. Your tattoo says hat. Oh my god! <laughs> I saw that in the I saw that in the trailer. If I had not seen that in the trailer, I would have been dying. If I, like, God, that part. covering up the E with this awkward, like, fully just like blacked out hat shape. How's that working out for you? Who doesn't like hats? <laughs> uh, I loved I loved that little moment. Yeah. Um, I loved the moment when John Bernthal was fucking with with baby. And he took the sunglasses off and he put on another pair yeah. and then he hit those ones off. And then later you see him put on a third pair. Yeah, so you're like, yeah, okay, yeah. he carries three pairs of sunglasses <laughs> at least with him at all times. Yeah. But I guess that kind of makes sense because he is also carrying like multiple iPods. Mm-hmm. And so I guess knowing that the sunglasses seem to be kind of a really important thing for him, they never like really address that. I don't know if it's like yeah. another kind of nod to like, you know, our senses and whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But. I thought that that was just kind of like an interesting character tick that they threw in there as well. Yeah. yeah. Can we, I saw, I have a nitpick, Andy. Pick that nit, Paul. That, that kind of reminded, you kind of reminded me of it when you said that, kind of, is that I feel like they, this movie introduced, introduced a lot of things that never paid off. Yes. And it introduced things in a way that was like, oh, this is something important. Yeah. And then it never paid off. Um, a small one is, and this is I'm, obviously this, when you're listening, you might be like, okay, okay, Paul, this doesn't really matter. <laughs> but a small one is like at the very end when John Hamm is in the stolen police car and they're driving around the parking garage and he's looking for, for baby and Deborah. That was her name, right? Yeah. Deborah, yeah. Looks just like a zebra. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's there's just like one part where it's like you just hear on the radio like oh look out for a look out for a police car that has the number blah 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 and then it shows his car and it has that number mm-hmm. but then like that the police never never come like I don't know for to me it's like why would they take thirty seconds to say like because we know that the police are looking for them it, it was almost kind of like that never showed up again where a policeman then sees the car. Like, I feel like there was maybe a deleted scene where someone sees, maybe it was that security guard, which he does see right shortly after that, where the security guard sees the car, sees the numbers like, Oh, this is this guy. I bet you that's what it was. And then, and then the rest of the security scene happened that did make it to the movie. Yeah. But the security guard is presented as like this hapless, like, Oh, a cop got hurt. Are you okay, buddy? You know, he he didn't approach the vehicle cautiously. And even that that security guard scene, though, nothing. I mean, I almost felt it's like that like was shot a... in the coffee cup, and then it's like gone. Yeah, yeah. Like um, we did not need any any other <laughs> emphasis that John Hamm is like a ruthless killer. Uh, up until that point, it wasn't like. Yeah. But but the the bigger one probably another a big example of that is when there's that random guy in the truck that tries to stop the heist. Uh huh. And then it just, that's like a really long scene of this guy trying to stop the heist. And then he just kind of never comes back into the movie again. It's like I expected that guy to come back in the movie and I was surprised when he didn't. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of playing with audience expectations that's cool. But I feel like when you kind of subvert expectations, it has to be in a way that either pays off or makes sense or is like interesting. And things like that just kind of feel like a plot thread that was dropped. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, he's just this guy that comes in and he's the hero and, like, I guess he's hired by the bank and has semi-automatic weapons and, like, oh. like what is that? Oh, I thought, I thought that his character was, like, ex-army or ex-marines type guy that's, like, just now this, like, guy that's fighting for righteous justice type thing. And he just happened to be there. Yeah, it was just weird because it looked like he was expecting it. Like, he just You're right. he was you know, walked the to the car looking suspiciously at their vehicle and was just kind of sitting there. And, yeah, that felt like something that didn't quite add up. Um, and I thought I was expecting John Bernthal to come back mm-hmm. because he was, like, this antagonist in the beginning. And then he's just gone forever and I guess it's like okay we expect certain things and we're not getting them which is kind of cool but it also felt like 
we were robbed of some sweet John Bernthal time. Like I was expecting, and I guess this is a great subversion of our expectations when he goes to pick up Deborah from the diner and it's John Hamm there when I was expecting Kevin Spacey to be there, oh. you know? And then you're like, okay, like that's cool. And you know, just like, I mean, cause the whole thing is the one last job trope. That's what yeah. this whole film is. But the one last job happens like halfway through the film with that chase sequence with the guy that follows him on the truck and you know following the trope something horrible goes wrong in one last job and messes everything up and something does go bad but it doesn't mess everything up they get away scot-free eventually and so it was just kind of like oh i was expecting something really bad to happen happen to baby and it is kind of like this one last job thing but then they just kind of the jobs just kind of keep coming yeah also um oh shoot i was gonna say something and and you know and that's obviously what makes the film interesting is that it's like you know you think you're out but you're not out yeah. we're gonna pull you back in and Kevin Spacey's this really nasty character yeah so oh oh I, I remember what I was gonna say um, I feel like what's what's the guy's name Shane from The Walking Dead John Bernthal I feel like his character was just kind of replaced with the Jamie Fox character they were, they basically played the same character yeah and that's something that I had a problem with is that. There's not really much like moral ambiguity in the film. The good guys are good, the bad guys are bad. You know, people keep people take character turns where they are good and then turn bad. Yeah. Which I that's my biggest issues and I want to talk about those in a second. But they're, you know, it is just kind of like you know who's good, you know who's bad for the most part. And whenever I see a character like the John Bernthal character, like Jamie Foxx's character Bats, you're just like are there people really like this that are just like jerks about everything? Like I'm sure there are. Well, yeah, those, I think those people are great examples that just go around shooting everybody. Well, and that's, uh, that's the thing. It's like what Jamie Foxx just literally kills everyone he comes into contact with <laughs> yeah. and he's totally fine and getting away with everything. Like I didn't pick on it the first time. He definitely killed the, the person at the, the grocery or the, um, he definitely killed the person at the gas station where he got the gum from. Yeah. And was going to just kill the waitress at the at the diner. Was going to kill Deborah. Yeah. And you're just like, really? That's like how you get away with things? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that makes no sense. It, it, it's very, I mean, you know, it's a, a world of heightened reality. Uh, this sort of collection of the criminal underbelly. It's, it's almost Tarantino-esque in these like exaggerated, interesting characters without... The, the interesting dialogue but it was just like i don't know it was just like it was too evil too much and i don't like i don't get the motivation for someone that i know they're painting it like you're you're all criminals and you're all bad but i don't get the motivation of someone that's like i'm just gonna be mean to everyone i'm doing a job with yeah and i'm gonna like pick on this guy that's responsible for my safety and is gonna be driving me like yeah you know, I, I could use a baby. It's easy to pick on a baby. But, like, <laughs> it, it just felt, like, too much. It was too exaggerated. And you're you're totally right that it was just like, oh, John Bernthal, he can only shoot for two weeks, so let's just replace him with Jamie Foxx and Colin Batts now. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it was just like, wh- why switch out one for the other? Does Kevin Spacey always need one asshole on the job? Like, <laughs> it, it just, that didn't work for me. And there was the whole, I, I it's kind of confusing to me that, that they made a point in saying Kevin Spacey's character says, "Oh, I never, I never use the same crew twice except for you," and then contradicts that with, with like the next. Well, it was he never used the same combination of crew. Oh, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't just the same. I thought, it, I thought maybe I'm wrong. I thought he said I never used like the same any of the same people. My impression was there's four people on every job, and it will never be the same configuration hmm. of four people. You can switch out one person. You switch out one yeah. jerk for the next jerk. Yeah. Like, um, on another, you know, I realized another kind of thread that I expected them to pick up later that they didn't was after the very first jobs, very early on in the movie, John Hamm's, when they're all in the elevator together, and John Hamm, um, when, they, when he leaves the elevator, I think he says, what does he say? He says something to, um, to Baby that's like, Oh, don't like, don't trust this guy, or like, don't like, oh, get out while you still can. Or he says something like that, not knowing that 
baby is being forced to do all these jobs and like is Kevin Spacey's basically like holding him hostage or like blackmailing him uh-huh. um, into having to do this. And I thought that that was going to come up later because you had said how none of the characters really change whether they're good or they're evil. Like John Hamm's character is, I think, very, very evil at the end. But my what I was kind of getting the feeling is I didn't know where he fell for the mo- most of the movie until kind of the end. And I expected Baby to like open up to him that he's basically being held hostage by Kevin Spacey and then John Hamm was going to help baby kind of get out of the situation but instead john ham's character kind of turns like full evil at the very end of the movie yeah i had a problem with that i basically the final third of the movie was full of character turns that or decisions made that to me just felt really illogical and weren't earned or like set up by the script you talk about like Kevin Spacey being like, I'm not going to help you. And then Deborah comes in. He's like, okay, I'll help you. <laughs> yeah. That to me, that was like the most glaring one. And, and his fucking reason is I was in love once. You're <laughs> yeah. like, fuck off. Yeah, like you like- already knew you threatened to harm everyone he loves. You threatened to harm his love interest. Yeah. And now, Oh, seeing them together all of a sudden makes you like feel for them and be willing to like take one for the team. And like the cops show up, like I got it. I'll take oh, care yeah, of it. Yeah. And like run off. You're going to self sacrifice. It's like, fuck off Kevin Spacey. <laughs> that went completely against his character up until then. Like you were, like you said, like sacrificing himself for, and, and I thought Kevin Spacey's character also dies in a kind of anticlimactic way. And does it really make sense that John Hamm would want to kill Kevin Spacey? I think John Hamm just was like he was. He was would just, you say he was going ham? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he was just kind of like on a war path and was just literally killing everybody. Which you know, because up until that point, he was kind of set up as like the cool, level-headed guy mm-hmm. that was going to be chill with Baby and was going to let let John Bernthal and Jamie Foxx fuck with him a little bit, but still kind of stand up for him. Yeah. And, the only hint of this is when the Isaac Gonzalez character is like when he sees red, like he's unstoppable or yeah. something like that. And like, I didn't even catch that line the first time. Oh, really? And, and you know, it's like one of those things where like you can tell directors like, Oh, we need some kind of thing. All oh, let's just slip in this one line. And you know, that's like a thing we complain about. Like, plot inconsistencies where like if they had just slipped in one line about this then it would have exploded <laughs> and here I am complaining about the yeah, one line yeah, yeah. being slipped in but it felt like we didn't really see that you know she's like right when you killed that guy for looking at me funny and you're like okay but it doesn't really feel like it's you know it, it didn't feel earned so he changes and he's like team good guy and then all of a sudden he's team like super evil mega yeah. bad guy and he's even taken out the person that we were positioned to think was going to be the big, you know, boss at the end of the yeah. level type yeah. character. And yeah, it wasn't, there was no emotional payoff for Kevin Spacey dying. Mm-hmm. It was just, you're like, oh, oh, okay, he's dead. All right. John Hamm is the bad guy now. Yeah, it, it, it was kind of, I don't know. I, that is kind of cool, though, that you watch most of the movie not realizing that John Hamm's character is going to be like this ultra bad badass guy at the very end like I, I think that might be kind of cool but like because because in the beginning they're you know john ham's listening in on baby's headphones and they're like singing along or whatever and and yeah, it, yeah definitely there's like a a big 180 on his character yeah and and to get back to the kevin spacey thing it was just so it just felt like like, I'll buy the John Hamm thing. His partner that he loves was killed. And, like, I get that. Like, that, even though it felt like there wasn't, like, a good ramping up to it, it still is, like, I understand that, like, on paper, this character motivation makes sense. Mm-hmm. What possible motivation did Kevin Spacey have? And, like, yeah. not even to just be, like, fine, grab your fucking tape, but to give him a bunch of money and, like, like and none of that him, sense. Cover him. Yeah. Basically, like, yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. <laughs> and so let me ask you this question. So leading up to the, the final heist gone wrong, there's the moment when they, they kill all the, the cops, which we find out are paid, paid off by Kevin Spacey. And Kevin Spacey's like, the job is off. Everybody leave. And you're like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then three of them, all of them but Baby are like, no, let's do this job. And then Kevin Spacey bizarrely is like, okay, well, if baby wants to do it, you can do it kind yeah. of thing. And he was so adamant about the job being off. 
and he's so controlling. Like, what do you think Kevin Spacey's motivation for doing that was? And then, and then why does baby say yes? Cause otherwise he would get out of there. You're right. I didn't think about why baby says yes, because he says yes. He's like, we under should get the... some fucking sleep so we can all like, yeah. Cause he's like, I'll, we'll be able to, I'll be able to sneak out at night, but Versus if he just... said no, he could just fucking <laughs> yeah. left. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I think, uh, I think he, baby says yes, because saying no would have like gotten the wrath from Jamie Foxx's character, who was like a very, who baby has literally seen kill people like for no reason up until then, you know? And who has already said he wanted to kill baby. Cause he's like, Oh, I can drive him home. You know? And like, oh, obviously yeah. that means he's going to kill him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. So I, I guess that's why the, but you're right. Kevin Spacey knew that this was going to go wrong. And he's like, fuck these guys. Like just let them get, let them get caught or whatever. Maybe it's just kind of like his plausible deniability. He's like, well, f- you're the ones that wanted to do it. So yeah. if it goes like, it's taking the responsibility off of his shoulders. But it just felt like a really weird thing to put on baby. Yeah. Yeah. You know what you know what scene I did like? You know what thread they did put down that got picked back up that I really liked? That post office teller. Yeah. The woman. Yeah. Like I I I I can't even put it into words, but I loved the scene where she's walking up and he just kinda like shakes his head no at yeah. her and she like kinda gives him that look and he just kinda gives her that look. And she, like, understands yeah. what he's trying to say. Oh, I thought that was, like, oh, I loved that scene. It was good and tense, but I don't get... It's not like Jamie Foxx was in the car. He could have been, like... You know, he could have he could have made some more gestures than this very subtle thing that he did. What do you mean? Oh, oh. Because like, he's just, like, like, very subtly, like, shaking his head. He could have been, like, hey, <laughs> don't go in there. And then she goes and gets a security guard to interrogate him kind of thing, which was, I felt like a weird reaction. Like I felt like she would just run away, but maybe she recognized him because he's wearing the same jacket and the sunglasses. Oh, she from... definitely recognized him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, no, no. Recognized him from the, the footage that was like on the news and things like uh, that. Oh, Cause I'm... otherwise she would have just been like, why is this guy that I met that was really nice, like shaking his really head nice, no at me. but very awkward. <laughs> yeah. Like I, with his not quite son, who's eight and not four, yeah, and his yeah. name is Sam. That character, that 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 kid was great when he lists off all the like. There's ten security cameras. There's three security guards. I I thought the, I laughed at that. I I did laugh at that, and I also upon second viewing, I was like, I think literally the only reason that that kid is in there is to uh, throw in why Kevin Spacey recognized the line from Monsters, Inc. at the end. Because, oh. like, otherwise it would have just been, like, really weird. And so he's like, oh, we need some excuse for why he would know a line from Monsters, Inc. And he's I, like, oh, it was Sam's favorite movie. I also enjoyed that. that he's like, that line, I knew I recognized that line. <laughs> you from- little shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that that was funny, too. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know. I'm I'm willing to suspend my belief about... Like that, that the look that they give each other, baby and the the woman from the post office, I'm willing to suspend my belief that that was enough for her to, for him to communicate, like, don't go in there. Something bad is happening in there right now that I'm responsible for. Yeah. And, and I, I'm willing to suspend my belief and I really, really liked that scene. I thought that was like a cool interaction between them. I enjoyed that scene. Um, did you... Because I feel like they they keep showing the um, when Baby eventually drives Jamie Foxx drives into the pole and kind of skewers him. They like showed that that truck like seventeen times yeah. the first time that you're watching it. Where you're like, he's gonna drive into that and skewer <laughs> Jamie Foxx. Because I think I had that thought. Seeing seeing those like rebar poles that were bound together hanging off the edge of the truck, I, I had some inkling that something was up, but I wasn't entirely sure what was gonna happen. I also kind of expected him to just drive off. Yeah. Like, it was almost like, why wait? I'm, aside from the fact that you'll have these three ridiculous murderers <laughs> on your trail for the rest of your life. But, like, why not just leave? No, That, that was right. his chance to, to just leave. Because he was just going to leave them anyway. He was going to sneak yeah. off at 2 a.m. and go meet up with Deborah the Zebra and, <laughs> and like, leave. So You're it would have right. been the same thing. Obviously, it's, that's not as bad as leaving them in the middle of a heist. Yeah. But it almost, it just felt like a weird thing. And then he waited so long to do it. I guess he was psyching himself up for it. But he's like, why wait so long for like the cops to get there and then finally do it? Do kill Jamie Foxx? Yeah. Like, why not just do it right away? And then you I, have I mean, more I time think, to flee the cops. I think there was like so much shit going on. And, and 
I think, you know what I think the reason is? Because what he was thinking about was like what to do knowing that that woman from the post office knows who he is. Yeah. So I think that's what was going through his head. And I liked that conflict where it's like, he's, he's basically like, I'm caught because this woman remembers who I am. She can tell like, he's basically done. He's basically done for. And I feel like that's what was going through his head. And then it was kind of like, fuck it. I have nothing. Like I'm going to get caught. So it's like, pff, might as well yeah. kill Jimmy Fox. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I will say though, I don't know if, cause John Hamm blames baby for his girlfriend being killed. I don't know if like he's exactly to blame. Yeah. Yeah. Why not blame your life of crime? Yeah. <laughs> why not blame your poor decisions that yeah that, and and i guess that's why because he wasn't portrayed as like a hothead like jamie fox was that's why that turn to super super evil baddie just felt so unearned mm-hmm. you know it wasn't like like if jamie fox was the one with the love interest who died and i could totally see him going after baby because he wanted to kill baby he's like wants to kill people yeah, yeah for yeah. no reason whatsoever he's just like he's a murderer he's a straight up murderer and john ham was not presented as that character yeah you know he's he's presented as a guy that can intensely stare down jamie fox but like that's it mm-hmm. you know i don't know so do you have more thoughts about that nope so paul yes we've been talking for a while and you know what we have barely mentioned whatsoever? What's that? Deborah. I liked her character. Yeah. That was good. She was, she was pleasant. Uh, I think the reason that we're not talking about her is because she is horribly underwritten. I feel like the women in this film are given almost nothing to do. I liked Isa's character yeah. a lot. Wish we got a lot more of her. And it was just kind of like... It just felt like wish fulfillment for like the white man kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know, and like and that's like one thing about the film that's like super just playing to the trope, super of type is this like this like white guy he's trying to get out of the situation and this woman comes into his life and she's like, I'll do whatever you want to do. And, yeah. you know, like and the only two women in this movie are the girlfriends of the main characters, basically. And that is, like, I- Isa's, like, defining characteristic is the fact that she is John Hamm's lover. And she is... J- essentially, she's just there to act as, like, motivation for him to, like, make this evil turn at the end. Yeah. Like, they don't really justify her being in the crew. They don't show them actually robbing the banks or anything. So mm-hmm. you don't see her in action. You don't see what she adds other than like sexing up John Ham and then making out together and and then her dying. Yeah. And the same thing with with Deborah. She's just there essentially as like motivation for for baby. You know, to to be threatened for him to try and save her. Yeah. You know, she does have some uh, she did hit uh, John Hamm with the crowbar towards the end that showed her taking some agency. Yeah. And she was driving the car at the end when they were uh, intercepted by the police, Mm -hmm. which side note, what a jerk when he threw the keys in the water. I was like, (laughs) someone's gonna have to move that car. (laughs) Like the car can't just stay there forever. Like he could have just thrown them 10 feet away from him on the bridge. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What a jerk. It's it's symbolic. Andy. (sighs) I guess. Yeah. He's like giving up the keys. Yeah. Um, yeah, her character, like when you said she was underwritten, it makes no sense for her to be like, oh, I just found out this guy's involved with these very dangerous people, this very sketchy situation. And she's like, I met this guy. I've hung out with him once. It's like, yeah, I think this is a good idea to go with him. I'd like to go on the lam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'd like to live a life of crime yeah. and just like always looking over my shoulder. You know, I... I did feel like their chemistry was pretty believable, but I think one, it's just because Ansel Elgort is like a very kind of effortlessly charming guy. Mm -hmm. She seems to have the same qualities, even though they're not really developed as much. So it's like props to the actors for, for kind of pulling that off. Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't enough to, to make it believable that she would just want to follow this guy into whatever horrible situation he's in. You know, they, they kind of set it up in that, She's like, I have nothing else here, and my sister's always better than me at this. And so it's like, okay, you get that. And she does obviously doesn't like her job. Her, yeah. her boss is a jerk. So all of that is like kind of set up, but it's still something that's like. Was her boss a jerk, Andy? Did they did they play that up enough? <laughs> did they really hit that hit that point home? He was developed very well as Debra! classic jerk boss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It just 
it felt like a really missed opportunity. And I, I was actually reading an article that was kind of breaking down like the soundtrack in terms of like demographic. And it was talking about how 87% of the soundtrack is still all bands led by men. You yeah. know, so it's, it's a very male driven film with like male music and it's all kind of like rock and roll, mostly played by like white people. And yeah, you know, so I, you know, it's not like everything has to appeal to everyone, but it also just felt like it could have been a lot more interesting and a lot more subversive if they had, if he had gone out of his way to have more representation because all, all of the big characters of color are all evil bad guys, you know, or inept. So except for, <laughs> except for CJ, who is the best press, press angel. Um, yeah. Like easily the John Bernthal, the flea character, the, the, um, Lanny June, who's JD, like those all could have been anybody like they, they th- those characters, Paul, yes. No nos could have only been played by Flea, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean. Like it's who played those characters didn't really matter. Like especially like the Flea character who doesn't really do that much at all. Yeah. So it's like there could have been women playing those characters, and it would not have been really any different. You know, because it does kind of stink that the only woman involved in the heists, like you had already mentioned, it, it like even though she has lines, it's like she's not bringing anything it's unclear what she's actually bringing yeah yeah you get a much more clear sense of who like jamie fox and john ham mm-hmm. are and even like kevin spacey to some extent so yeah. yeah it was just i don't know if really any of edgar wright's films like off the top of my head that i can think of are really really have strong like women in them yeah, I mean, I'd have to really go through and do a, a, a like an analysis of these things, and obviously Scott Pilgrim plays to the manic pixie dream girl trope, but that is source material that he didn't write, mm-hmm. so it's like okay, I'll give him a pass, but he did choose to direct it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like all of that is to say, he could have done better in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. What did you? Let me ask you, what did you think of Baby at the end of the movie being sentenced to? 25 years in prison with a parole hearing after five. Does that seem like a reasonable time? Is that what you're saying? I, I'm because I, when, when that scene was about to happen in my head, I was like, Ooh, I, I wonder what they have chosen to do because it kind of like, it kind of would affect how you, f- and they do show a little bit what happens after that. Uh-huh. But to me, that kind of would affect what happens next in the movie. Like they could have played it as like, Oh, you were forced and coerced into doing this. Um, like you're a good guy. We're only going to give you five years or, or like, wow, you were involved in killing many, many, many people. <laughs> like you're getting life in prison or something like that. You know, like I, I, I feel like to me, I expected one or the other. I expected yeah. like a hundred years in prison or five years. in nope, prison. Just a totally reasonable sentence. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I didn't have much opinion on on that either way. Yeah. Well, that's the end of that uh, conversation. <laughs> One thing I will say um, for people that are kind of interested more in the, the background of this, where this movie came from, this is actually uh, Edgar Wright, like a long time ago, I'm, online I'm actually seeing 1994, he developed the idea for this movie. And um, in 2003, he actually directed a music video for the band Mint Royale. The song is called Blue Song. Uh, that is, you will watch this music video and you will be like, wow, this is the intro. This is the, in, the intro scene of Baby Driver. So he developed this idea. He kind of found a place for it, an, an outlet for it in this music video. And then uh, 15, almost 15 years later, was able to do it as an as a full length movie, which is kind of cool, I think. Yeah, I guess we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll have. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it's kind of it's kind of cool. I think it's cool that he, because because I feel like some some artists might make that music video or, or whatever and be like, well, that's it. Like I've realized to this dream. But to him, I think it was kind of like, no, this isn't the full extent to what this could be. So I'm going to do it again. <laughs> he, he was like, I could do this better. Yeah. Um, which he did. Yeah. He, he did yeah, it yeah. very much better. Oh, I guess one last thing I want to talk about was the, the technical proficiency of the car stunts. Mm-hmm. I think especially in the beginning. And 
Paul, before we started talking, you were mentioning how like some of the, the so, some of those stunts are like really delicate. Yeah. Right. And they, if they like fuck up, then they they even if they even if they're obviously if there's like a terrible crash, that would be very bad. But even if they like. You know, like, because they're doing a lot of, like, skidding and stuff like that. If they slam into a wall or something, they can't use that car again. They need to, like, get a different car. Well, now, luckily, Paul, there just happened to be two other red cars driving on the highway that they could pick up one from anyway. That part, to me, I was like, that's so cool, but also no way in hell that would actually happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your whole getaway hinges on that happening, that Mm -hmm. chance occurrence. Yeah. Didn't buy it. But I think he would have figured out something else. I mean, he's a very competent driver, but... I don't know. It was just like it was just like a fun shell game with cars, basically. Yeah. How uh, <laughs> it was. How old was he supposed to be? Would you say like twenty five? I don't know, because when he was in um, the Fault in Our Stars, it seemed like he was kind of like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, like a like a high schooler. Well, he can't be that because remember, Kevin Spacey says, "Oh, do you remember this job ten years ago?" Yeah. And when he was literally a baby driver. <laughs> <laughs> Like, so I would assume he's 25 now, which would make him like 15 back then, which is still kind of like, wow, this guy can do these ridiculous. Yeah, because they said he made a mistake when he was younger. So I assume, yeah, he's probably 25. Well, they say what the mistake is, right? They, he stole a car. Yeah. He stole Kevin Spacey's but car. But they qualified as saying it like he was younger. Like they say that in the, um, in the courtroom scene where they're talking about, he just made a mistake when he was younger and he's been paying for it ever oh, since. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I would guess younger would, would be 14, 15, 16, somewhere around there. Yeah. But yeah, going back to what you said, I wonder what the car budget for this movie was. <laughs> Cause there wasn't like, it wasn't fast and furious. Like these, they had nice cars, but not fast and furious, like extravagant, like all this detail work done on the cars, but just by the fact of, they probably trashed so many cars. I imagine they were paying a lot of money for this. This film could have used a little more Tyrese, though. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah, looking it up, the budget of this movie was $34 million. And in the box office, it's made $71 million already. So right on. money well spent. Yeah. I hope, I hope we see more films of this nature or at least hopefully more interesting original films. Yeah. You know, like we said, in many regards, not the most original film, but certainly the vision and the way it was pulled off was very entertaining and very original. I don't think I'd want a sequel to this movie. I think the story that they did was unique in, in, in it had you very unique elements with the music. I don't think they should try and do that again. It would be hard to see a film that could recapture what this film captured. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a sequel. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Let us know what you thought of Baby Driver. Let us know what you want us to review. Send us an email, epicnitpick at gmail.com. Head over to the Instagram. You can find all sorts of mini reviews over there as well. Yeah. All right. So, Andy. Yes, Paul. I think this nit has been picked. Picked.